0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast
1: from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So let's turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. And if you remember last week, we talked about mainly the purpose of the writing and how it was written and the greeting. And we looked at the threefold description that it started with the Father who is with us. And then it went out of order to the Holy Spirit. Oh, we already prayed. Yeah, we did. Yeah. We did an opening prayer. We can pray again. <laughs> it's like, make sure you pray. I can pray again. Uh, second, we did Holy Spirit. He is the perfect, powerful spirit. And then the focus was on Jesus, and then there were three descriptions, like there's two sets of three, Um, and then it talked about the second coming. And so as we get to verse 9 of chapter 1, this is where John starts to talk about his vision. So verse 4 is kind of the letter aspect of Revelation, where he's writing to the churches, and then in verse 9, he's talking about how this vision came to him, and then he's going to give, to give the, the vision. So let's just read verse 9. We're just going to kind of go verse by verse, and I'm going to explain uh, some of the truths out of these passages. And I think these are important. So, verse 9, chapter 1 I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Okay, so who's writing this? I, John, I'm your brother and I'm your partner. In what? Three experiences that all believers face. What's the first thing he says? And remember this, guys, because some people will try to tell you that there is going to be a great tribulation someday. There may be a great tribulation someday, but John, who's writing this, what's he saying about himself? In I am in, I'm your partner in tribulation right now. So the first thing he says is we all go through tribulations and times of trials as believers. So this is not a Pollyanna type of Christian experience where we should expect there to be no problems. John says, listen, every single Christian is a partner with me in tribulation. What did Jesus say in John 16, 33? Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you, what, might, may, could, what did he say? You will have tribulation, same Greek word, but take heart, I've overcome the world. What does Jesus say? He's a realist. He says, you're going to have tribulation in this world acts 14 21 through 22 when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples they returned to lystra and iconium and to antioch strengthening the souls of disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of god so here's the theological question are we right now in the midst of a tribulation in a sense, yes, in that no matter how you slice it, you are going to go through periods of trial on this earth. Now, in some places in the world, it's more intense. Like if we were to live in North Korea or in Sudan or someplace like Myanmar, the persecution, the tribulation is going to be higher than what it is here in America, but Are we ever promised in the Christian life No problems No trials No problems So an expectation Of being a Christian Especially if you're going to be a faithful witness to the gospel Is that you will go through times of trials So that's the first thing John says I'm your partner in the tribulation In the times of tribulation Times of struggle Second thing he says here, he says, I'm your partner in the kingdom. Now, this refers to what we said earlier last week, that we are a kingdom of priests. So we are called out as God's chosen church to be a holy nation. So when we are a kingdom, when we're partners in the kingdom, this refers to the mission that we have as believers to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. We must always be faithful to the gospel message until Christ comes back. So we are part of the kingdom of God. And that's a huge topic. What is the kingdom of God? As a matter of fact, two weeks ago when I was praying with my pastor friend, so every Wednesday um, we pray today. Uh, there's seven of us when we are all there, um, evangelical pastors in the area. We pray every Wednesday. And two weeks ago, one of the pastors just... Before we pray, says, "What's you guys' view on the kingdom of God?" And we're like, "You have like three hours to sit and talk about it." So we all talked about the kingdom of God. Um, let me just kind of tell you what the kingdom of God is in a nutshell. You got a king, and you got a dom. Okay, what's what's dom short, short for? Domain. You got a, a you got a realm. And you've got a king. Who's the king? Jesus is the king of the kingdom. Now, there's a sense in which when Jesus came to earth and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, he announced the kingdom of God is at hand. So, in a sense, Jesus brought the kingdom rule in his proclamation of the gospel. Right now, is God's kingdom coming to earth in the sense that people are getting saved and his kingdom is growing? And is there a sense that in the final day, God's going to establish his kingdom? So there's a past, present, future aspect to the kingdom. Jesus established the kingdom. The kingdom is being built and expanded right now through the mission of the church, people becoming saved. And then there's a final day where Jesus is going to ultimately establish his kingdom ultimately. And so we're partners in that. And Ultimately, it means we submit to Jesus as king. And then thirdly, what does he say there at the, at the rest of verse 9? We are partners in the patient endurance or perseverance. Now, this is a key theme in the book of Revelation. Perseverance. There is a demand placed on every believer to persevere to the end, to overcome to conquer as a matter of fact at the at the end of almost every this like i think it's four of the seven churches and then later on in chapter 14 there's a phrase that's repeated that the one who endures the one who's patient the one who perseveres so think about how John frames the beginning of this book you're going to have trials you need to be patient and endure, but you're part of the kingdom. Now, that should that that, that could do two things to you. Well, what's the first response you could have to that? Well, thanks a lot. <laughs> I gotta patiently endure, and I gotta go through tribulation. I really don't want to experience that. Or it could be, you know what? Because Christ is the King of the Kingdom, and I'm part of His kingdom. He will give me the strength to persevere to the end and he will sustain me through the trial. So no matter what comes, I'm part of the kingdom of God and I am a child of God. And thus I can have hope that whatever befalls me in this earth, Christ is king and nothing happens outside of his sovereign purview in my life.
0: It's that hope of the end is in sight.
1: Yeah, the hope of the end is in sight. I
0: have that yeah. promise that it's not always going to be.
1: Yeah, and, and you have the hope that the king wins in the end, and you know the end of the story. So, All right, so where's John? Verse 9. I, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos. Okay, what, what is Patmos? Patmos is 40 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey, Which back then was Asia Minor, where Ephesus and those seven churches were. It's 10 miles by 6 miles on a volcanic rocky wasteland that rises 800 feet above sea level. Basically, it was the Alcatraz of the day. Okay? There's no way you're getting off that thing. If you jump 800 feet, what are you going to land on? Rocks. And how far away are you from the shore? 40 miles. I'm sure those are probably shark-infested waters. I don't know. Now, why is John there? Was John there because he was planting a church and being a missionary and, you know, he wanted to be there? That, that's, where, that's where I'm going to plant a church and that's where the action is. Why is he there? God
0: put him there. Well, God put
1: him there. He's in
0: because of the word of
1: God. And the yeah, look at what it says there. It tells you why. He's there on account of, or for the reason why, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So why is he there? These two expressions, on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus, are almost always used of tribulation and martyrdom. Now, why is he there? Remember what I said last week? Who is the emperor in Rome at this time? It's an emperor named Domitian. What did Domitian require every citizen of Rome to do once a year? Come to a pagan temple, to Zeus, or to Apollo. Take a pinch of incense on the altar. Publicly stand before the community and pledge your allegiance to Caesar as your Lord and God. And I'm sure John refused to do that. And it could be that because he refused to do that and because he was a pastor and because he was a vocal leader and he was the last living apostle, he was arrested and put on a penal colony of Patmos. So he's there... Because he was faithful to the gospel message, regardless of what it cost him. And I want us to remember that, guys, because as we go through the book of Revelation, one of the main themes is, are we going to be faithful to the gospel, regardless of what the culture says, regardless of what the pushback is? That's the ultimate question, okay? All right, let's look at verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So when, or on what day, did John receive the revelation? He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's Lord's Day, Day. okay. Sunday. We call Sunday the Lord's Day. John can't be in church with his congregation, so what did he probably do? It's Sunday morning. I'm going to go out on the edge of the cliff by myself and maybe sing a few songs and maybe, you know, remember the teachings of Jesus and I'm going to worship and pray. And so he is in the Spirit. Now, what does this mean? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Does it mean he was in a trance? He got caught up to heaven he doesn't tell us all we know is that what he was given was a supernatural prophetic vision of things to come okay so it was a supernatural spiritual experience on the Lord's Day now you may wonder why it's called the Lord's Day and this is a side note, we're not going to spend any time on this tonight, but the early church changed their worship from Saturday, which was the Sabbath day worship, the synagogue worship, from Saturday to Sunday. Why? Because of the resurrection, the first day of the week. Now uh, You see that in Acts 20 verse 7 and in 1 Corinthians 16 2, and in this passage right here. And that's why we as Protestant evangelicals worship on the Lord's day. So technically, for the rest of the world, Sunday is Sunday. It's a day on the calendar. What's it for a Christian? It's the Lord's Day, which means every day is God's day. I mean, because God owns every day. But the one day that he calls his church to gather and worship, it's called the Lord's Day. Okay, now what did John hear? This is going to be interesting. John's going to, like, hear stuff before he sees stuff. And what does he hear? (laughs) Okay. A loud voice behind him, like a trumpet. And that would probably freak you out. If you're praying, you're in the Spirit, of this loud trumpet. So when you think of the shofar blowing or a trumpet, when you think back to the Old Testament, it usually announced a warning or something impending's coming. He could have jumped
0: off that. He probably could
1: have jumped, yeah. I'm going to jump off the cliff here. So he's probably a little startled. And what does he turn around and see?
0: Jesus, the Okay,
1: let's look at verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning. What's the first thing he sees? Seven golden lampstands. Okay, so what are the seven golden lampstands? Well, we find out later on, back down in verse 20, the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. So it's very interesting. The first thing that John sees are the churches. Okay? Now, Who is in the middle of the church? Verse 13. In the midst, in the middle of the... Remember, this is a vision, guys, so let's not take this literalistically. John, this literally happened to John. He literally saw this, but a lot of it's symbolism. In the midst, or in the middle of the lampstands, what does the lampstands represent? The churches. So for John, the vision is, I see the churches, the seven churches that I'm supposed to write to, And in the middle of them is one like a son of man. Now, this would bring great comfort to those persecuted churches because who's right in the middle of their situation? Jesus. So it's not like, this would be a very depressing image. Let's say John turns around and sees the lampstands, but there's nobody there. They're by themselves. They've been abandoned. But what he sees is the churches, but right in the middle of the churches is Jesus. So I want to ask you a question is a church anything without Jesus? Can a church have a church sign and have worship services and call themselves a church and yet not have Jesus? And they can attempt to, I guess. I don't know if it'd really be called a church. A church is a church because of who is the head of the church. Jesus. And Jesus is the source of light because he's in the midst of the lampstands. What did Jesus say about himself in John 8, 12? Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay. So verses 12 through 16, I want to give you a couple of... um, interpretive clues here because let's go back to chapter 1, or in chapter 1, verse 1. We talked about this last week. What is one of the interpretive keys for understanding the book of Revelation? Back in verse 1, God made it known. What does that mean in the original language? God explained it or made it known or revealed it through symbols, visual pictures. So the way to interpret Revelation is through visual imagery. In other words, what we're about to see, Jesus, you do not get out a pen and draw what you see as if that's literally what it is. You understand what I'm saying? We talked about this last week. When we get to this, you know, this would be a monstrous picture if you really drew what it what it, it's supposed to be symbolic, okay? Another key to interpreting is that all throughout the book of Revelation, John is going to use the word like. He's a good body girl. Like uh, cool. Now he's gonna use the word like. He can't quite explain what he sees, so the only way he can say it is this is like. Something I know on earth. And so I'm seeing something that looks like this, okay? So it's a symbol, it's, it's like, it's something that, that we would recognize here on earth, but he doesn't know exactly what it is, so he says it looks like this, okay? You'll see that. So let's, let's read this. In the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Okay, so this is the Son of Man. Obviously, this is Jesus. How often did Jesus refer to himself in the Gospels as the Son of Man? What's he wearing? A long robe and a golden sash. Okay, Remember what I said? Almost all of the symbolism in the book of Revelation ties back to imagery in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in ancient times, the longer the robe the more authority and dignity. And number two, the golden sash is an allusion to the Old Testament high priest described in Exodus chapter 28, 4, and 5. So the long robe and the golden sash immediately would jump out at a person that's reading the Bible that knows their Old Testament. Ah, I know what those two images mean. Jesus is king and he's the high priest. Jesus is the king and he's the high priest. And if you go back and read the book of Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus is the king and he's the high priest. Okay? Yes. So go ahead. it
0: seems like here, oh. Sean, is that he says he's like the Son of Man. He may not quite sure is this really Jesus. Yeah, this he does really
1: my friend. He doesn't know yet. And we're gonna hold that thought okay. because at the end of this vision, there's a key. To that, but that's a good question. Glenn, Glenn, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that John did know what Christ looked like because he walked with it. Yeah. John knew what the physical Christ, the resurrected Christ, looked like, but what we're about to see here is a vision that's a whole lot different than what Jesus looked like when he rose from the dead. It's the same Jesus, but there's some... Remember, this is a vision, symbolic imagery. And so... Of course, we're going to see it in, in seven descriptions, because what's seven again? What's the number seven in the book of Revelation? Number. Completion, perfection. So there are, this is a seven-fold description of Jesus, like the Son of Man, okay? And I want you to count how many times the word like shows up. So in verse 14, the hairs of his head were white. So does this mean Jesus literally has white hair? Or is it symbolic? Okay? Again, all of the imagery here that John sees of Jesus and all of his glory goes back to an image in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, As I look, this is Daniel, Old Testament, As I look, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning. This is a vision of the Ancient of Days... God in the Old Testament, and how is He described? Very similar to this white hair. Now, you guys tell me, what does white represent, and why is it on His head? Purity. Purity. White hair in that culture was a symbol of honor. So, if you were an elder, an older person, you had white hair, you were, so you older guys with older ladies with white hair, it's a symbol of honor. But it's also a picture of Jesus as the pure king, the purity of Christ. What does Peter tell us in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19? Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Jesus is the pure king, the pure spotless lamb. Did Jesus ever once sin? Think about this for a moment, okay? Those of you that are parents of teenagers or young children, <laughs> Jesus never once sinned in thought, word, or deed. So when Mary told him to take out the trash, he didn't grumble under his breath and complain. <laughs> when he hit his hammer on his thumb working in Joseph's carpentry shop, he didn't blurt out a cuss word. Jesus never once sinned. If he had sinned, what would that cause for the atonement? We wouldn't have a perfect sacrifice. So even as the resurrected Christ, he is pure. Now, okay, so it starts from the top of his, his head. He's the king. He's pure. Okay, what's the second description? Okay, so his eyes were like, there's the word like, his eyes were like a flame of Fire. Now what would this represent, Jesus having... Does this literally mean (laughs) like laser beams are coming out of Jesus' eyes? Again, this is symbolism. What is this symbolic imagery of Jesus having flaming eyes? What do eyes do? They see. see. What do flaming eyes do? They They burn through all deception. They see all things. Nothing escapes the burning eyes of Jesus. What does Hebrews 4.13 say? No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Does anything escape Jesus' gaze? Can you hide from Jesus? You can think you can hide from Jesus, but can you escape the penetrating gaze of Jesus? He knows all things. Okay, now we go down to his feet. Verse 15. This is the third description. His feet were like... Burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Now what's the deal with feet? Why 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 are what's the significance of feet? And why are they of burnished bronze refined in a furnace? What do feet do? They stand, they move. When an army comes through, you've seen all right, let's let's make a Star Wars illustration. Okay. Some of you don't like Star Wars, some of you. Do. When the stormtroopers come, all in formation there, and the imperial march comes, and they're all marching, and you hear the sound of marching stormtroopers. What do you hear at the sound of marching feet? What does it sound like? Storm. An army's coming, and it's about to stomp and tread, and, and we mean business here. So this is military imagery of Jesus coming in feet of judgment. Okay, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, later on in the book of Revelation, at the second coming, when it's recapitulated from a different camera angle, John's going to see Jesus coming, and he's going to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. So, Revelation 19.15, we'll get there in a while. So, this is later on in Revelation, but it's the same imagery here. What what have we... From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Now I want to get you prepared for Revelation. If you have a problem with Jesus executing justice on his enemies when he comes back, you're going to have a problem with the book of Revelation because it talks about judgment. Now, we as squeamish, postmodern, American, comfortable people, we don't often like to think of Jesus in those terms, do we? We don't often talk about Jesus coming in judgment. We talk a lot about him coming and living a perfect life. We talk about him healing. We talk about the miracles. We talk about his teaching. We definitely talk about the cross. We definitely talk about the resurrection. We definitely talk about the ascension. He's at the right hand. But when Jesus comes back, what does Revelation say he's going to do? He's going to mete out justice. And there's a lot of Christians that have a problem with that imagery because they don't like to think of Jesus as being mean in their words.
0: If you don't have a problem with that,
1: then you also don't believe that you really need salvation. Exactly. If you don't believe, yeah, you don't, say that again, Dodie. If you don't have a problem with the judgment,
0: then yeah. you really don't know that you have a need for salvation. Yeah, amen. Paul, you were going to say something. Um, the Jews were expecting somebody to come as a fighter. And yeah, kinda... we... yeah Good judgment on the romans i'm just wondering if yeah the first right yeah
1: when Jesus' first coming they expected a military ruler to rule and reign in jerusalem with an iron fist kick out rome come in on a white horse and set up the kingdom jesus came on a donkey and was crucified in his first coming his first coming purpose was to die as the suffering servant as the lamb led to the slaughter on the cross the second time he com- or the, the second coming, is he going to come as savior or is he going to come as judge? Judge, judge. 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 guys, this is on your notes, but I just popped into my head. Turn to the book of Hebrews for a moment, a few books back. So the Jews were just off by one coming. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. Oh gosh, so I got to find this uh, passage of scripture. Um. Okay. Uh, Hebrews chapter nine, verse twenty-six. Hebrews chapter nine, verse twenty-six. This is not in your notes. So this is an extra little thing we're going to talk about tonight, but it goes exactly with what I'm talking about here coming in wrath. So Hebrews nine twenty-six. This is talking about Jesus. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is. He, this is Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Okay, what does Hebrews say? Once and for all, Jesus died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice. And just as it appointed for man to die once, so that blows reincarnation out of the water, after that comes the judgment. And here's the, here's the key, verse 28. So Christ, having offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. So Jesus came as the fir- in his first coming to die as a sacrifice for sin. The second time he comes is to save his people and execute wrath on his enemies. And that's why John sees the, the feet. Okay? If that's not scary enough, so think about the scary imagery here. I mean, it's, this is scary. If you turn around and saw this, this would be scary. You see penetrating eyes. You see like these feet of burnished burnish bronze. And then look at this, the fourth thing. The second half of verse 15. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Anybody ever been to Niagara Falls? I've never been there, but those of you that have been there, is it loud? Yeah. I mean, I've been to some bodies of water where there's waterfalls. And it's per- I mean, think about how loud that would have been. And again, this is imagery from the Old Testament. Ezekiel 43, 2. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Now, why would the voice of Christ be important? We've got the eyes of Christ. He sees all things. We've got the feet of Christ. He comes in judgment. We've got the the white hair of Christ. He's the pure reigning king. Why the voice? He's, he's got to be communicator. Okay, he's the voice of truth. He's what?
0: He's got to be firm.
1: Okay, he's got to be firm. Let me ask you a question. Do we live in a world of sound bites? Yeah. Talking heads everywhere. I mean, I can't tell you how many... You just go on Facebook and see... I mean, whatever news channel you watch. There's talking head after talking head. And after a while, what happens? It sounds like the peanuts, doesn't it? Like the, you know like the adults in the peanuts cartoon.. Wah, 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 wah. You hear so many things. Whose voice counts the most that we need to listen to? Whose voice has the ultimate authority? So when Christ speaks through His word today, represented by the voice of, or like the sound of many waters, his voice rises above the drone of empty words and elevates to a position of power and a roar that demands attention and obedience. We listen to the voice of Christ. Okay? Now, so we've talked about his, his head, we've talked about his feet. <laughs> Sorry, my wife is making faces at me <laughs> um, in <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: So his head, his feet, his eyes, his voice. All right, look at verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars okay right hand first of all what's the significance of the right hand in the bible it's a it's a symbol of authority of power and what is jesus holding seven stars okay who are the seven stars There's some different ways of looking at this. (laughs) It could be the messengers or the pastors or the seven churches themselves. Regardless of how you view the stars, what's the important thing? Jesus is, not only is he in the midst of the church, he's what? He's holding the church together. He's holding you in his right hand. What does Jesus say in John 10, 28, 29? This is the words of Jesus himself. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will what? Snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's. So not only is Christ walking among the churches, or in other words, not only is Christ in the center of his church but he holds us together in the powerful grip of his right hand. We are safe, secure, and in his care. Now, let's just ask a simple question. No one can snatch us out of Jesus' hand. We're in the grip of Jesus. We're in the grip of the Father. We're in the double grip. He gives us eternal life. We will never be separated from Jesus. Can we lose our salvation? No. No. But let me ask you a question. Does this mean that we won't ever suffer harm? No. Does this mean we won't possibly ever be martyred for our no. faith? Okay? Just because hey, like just because Jesus holds us in his hand, it means we are spiritually protected. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we won't ever suffer physical harm or go through trials so listen to jesus's own words in luke chapter 12 verses 4 through 7 i tell you my friends do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do but i will warn you whom to fear Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten by God? Why, even the number of your heads are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Just because we are spiritually protected in the right hand of Jesus does not mean that we're immune to ever having to go through any type of physical suffering or persecution or trials or tribulations. What's the one thing nobody can take from you? Your salvation. salvation. Can they take your life? Can they take your home? Can they take your finances? Can they put you in jail? What's the one thing they can't take away? Your salvation. And hopefully it never comes to that. I mean, we hope it doesn't come to that. But remember who John, remember who where John is? Why would this be important to John? I mean, not think about John for a moment. Not only is he on that penal colony because of his witness, but where is he not at? He's not at the churches. He's not pastoring. So he's got probably the burden. He's probably wondering what in the world is going on back in those churches? If I'm suffering. I wonder how much they're suffering. This gives me great encouragement to know that Jesus has us in his right hand and no matter what comes my way, no matter what comes these churches' way, no matter what comes your way, Jesus has got us in his grip. Bring
0: that back to the present day, I'm thinking of the pastor who was in prison in Turkey. Yeah. Same thoughts had because he yeah. was mine recently when yeah. yeah. I got
1: back home. Yeah. Yeah, if you're truly a pastor... And you love your people and you have a shepherd's heart, not only are you burdened for yourself, but you're burdened for your flock. That's why Paul, remember when Paul, I can't remember exactly where, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, he says, Not only, I mean, I've been beaten, I've been shipwrecked, I've been stoned, and not only all the physical stuff that's happened to me, I have the daily pressure of the churches on my mind. I'm kind of paraphrasing it. So it would bring great comfort to John to know that. Even though you're removed from your church, Jesus is still the senior pastor. He's got, he's got you in his grip. Okay. Now, these are scary images, but they're comforting images. Okay, Verse 6 would be probably another scary image. I mean, this is not verse 6, but the sixth aspect here. Um, at the end of verse 16, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Okay. That's the sharpest weapon in the Roman arsenal, the two-edged sword. Well, what do we find out about um, the two-edged sword? Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and hearts of man. Well, what, what, what does a sword represent? A
0: weapon,
1: a weapon of what? A
0: weapon.
1: Offensive weapon of war. Okay, Jesus is a warrior. Why is it coming out of his mouth again? Wouldn't you expect, if you were like gonna draw a picture, wouldn't you expect for it to say, in his hand he was wielding a two-edged sword? I mean that's natural, isn't it? What does it say? In his mouth <laughs> came out of two-edged sword. Why the imagery of the mouth again?
0: Because of the judgment. Likely because that's going to be like a two inch sword cutting through your throat okay. tomorrow when
1: you're judged. Yes, think about the imagery flaming eyes, sword out of the mouth, roar of many waters, stomping feet. I mean, this is not the, the, the feathered haired hippie Jesus you see sometimes in the movies that walks around with a little cuddly lamb speaking in a British accent. It's the wimpy Jesus. You see. This is a scary portrait of Jesus. If you're not saved. Even if you are. I mean, even if you John, are. John falls down. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're going to get to So, yeah. So, Matthew. And Jesus even said this metaphorically in his earthly ministry in Matthew 10, 34 and 35. Jesus said, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, does that mean Jesus literally came to cause war in families and to cause... But what's he saying?
0: Well, wouldn't it be like the families who have
1: believers and unbelievers? Yes, exactly. Exactly, Risa. If, okay, let's just put it this way. There's no middle ground with Jesus. He's not going to let you have middle ground. You're either going to be with Jesus or you're not. And if you're in a family. Be, a cold be yeah, if you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're in a family where some are believers and some are not. That's going to cause some friction, is it not? Now I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm not saying you can't you can't do it. Obviously, by God's grace, you can. But but Jesus comes and says, you need to make a decision. Are you going to follow me? Because when I come, I'm going to demand ultimate allegiance. I'm going to come like a sword. Yes, a sword.
0: Isn't there a relationship between the sword of God and, and and the word of the? It's not coming to me right.
1: Yeah, the Word of the Spirit. The Spirit yeah, the Spirit, sword of the Spirit. Spirit. Is the Word of God. Yeah, in Ephesians chapter 6. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's all that imagery of an offensive weapon. Yeah. But I think the imagery here is that Jesus comes in judgment. Right. And then to top things off, let's look at the last description, the seventh description. If everything wasn't scary enough, it says, And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So like at noon... Or one or two o'clock in the middle of the summer. Jesus' face. <clears throat> Jesus is too brilliant to even look at. I mean at this point John's like, I can't even I can't even look at. So brilliant, so so powerful. Well that's reminiscent of the
0: Yeah. Know. Exactly. Well, with all this imagery you can see why earlier, you know, you could say he was like the son
1: of God. Yeah. Yeah, like,
0: and that's what. Jesus, but I'm not Uh, sure. I'm
1: not sure because it's like a man, it's like a son of man, but all these things are just overpowering me. So, so here we go. Here, let's take all these seven portraits, seven descriptions, composite. Here is a powerful, brilliant, dazzling awe-inspiring vision of the resurrected Christ in all of his glory as the coming judge who is a mighty warrior and a victorious monarch. And what does John do in verse 17? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It wasn't like John goes up to Jesus and gives him a high five and says, you're my homeboy. (laughs) There's a fear. That word "fall to the ground" means to fall violently, to spasmodically fall and shudder, because you're paralyzed and terror. There sometimes is trauma in this unsafe lore. Let me just ask you a question we're going to look at these scriptures is john the first person in the bible to fall on his feet or fall on his face as though dead before god isaiah chapter 6 when isaiah sees the lord what does he do isaiah 6 verse 5 i said woe is me for i'm lost i'm a man of unclean lips I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah is in the temple, and he sees the temple shake, and he sees the flying creatures, and he sees the Lord in all his glory, he falls as though a dead man and says, I'm lost, I'm ruined, I'm undone. So Isaiah falls in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, the prophet in the Old Testament. Ezekiel one twenty-eight. Like the appearance of the bow that's in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Sound familiar? Every time either Christ or the Lord God, the Father, shows up in Shekinah or overpowering brilliance or overpowering glory, the reaction by people in the Bible is to fall on their faces. So that should tell us something about how we worship. Well, and it says that when
0: he comes, everybody's going to fall to their
1: knees. Yeah, they're going to fall. They're, yeah, they're to, every knee will bow. Daniel chapter 10, it happened to Daniel, verses 7 and 9. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fully fearfully changed, and I retrain, retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Okay, so three Old Testament characters, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, all fell to the ground. Okay, what about Paul?
0: Remember what happened
1: to Paul when he was Saul? What happened on the road to Damascus? Blinded by the light. He was blinded. <laughs> he couldn't eat for three days. Now you may say, "Is this the first time John ever fell at Jesus's feet?" Well, with the resurrected, glorified vision of Christ, yes. But back in Matthew, there's a moment where there was another time that the apostle John fell at Jesus's feet. Matthew 17:5 through 7. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. Who was on the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter, James, and John. So John actually got to see something like this before in his life. And how did he respond the first time? This is before Jesus even died on the cross fell on my face and this is ten times scarier than maybe what John saw the first time on the Mount of transfiguration and what does he do he falls on his face and let's just stop for a moment and we, we, we need to be balanced here so I don't want to be out of balance I don't want to, do some, I don't want to take it too far to an extreme because I think you, we need to take the whole counsel of scripture but let's just, let's just ask a question when we evaluate our worship of Jesus, do you think in our contemporary evangelical world there is this emphasis on the reverence of Christ, who will we fall on our face, or is it more happy clappy? I have, I have, I can just barge into God's presence and I have access, and I'm just going to come and just praise the Lord. And again, I don't want to take it out of balance, but my question is: Have we lost somewhat of that? Holy awe of our great God when we gather for corporate worship. When was the for last time? When was the last time at a Sunday morning in Emmanuel you felt the freedom to fall on your face because you were in the presence of God without looking weird to people around you or thinking we were charismatic or something? I mean, what? what I mean, there have been very few times where I felt. The overwhelming, manifest presence of God. Now, God's all present everywhere, but there's those times in corporate worship where the the manifest presence of God is felt where I was brought to my knees. Few and far between. And that kind of concerns me when you think about it. And a lot of it, I think, is our attitude. Do we come in flippant and, and, you know, we come in carefully and flippant and not really thinking about it, or do we come in prepared? And do we come in concentrated? And Do we come in with our hearts ready for God to, to speak to us? I think it, I think a lot of it is. I wonder how much more God would would move in our services if our attitude corporately was more engaged, as opposed to just Sunday. I'm coming in. This is what I do. We even... kind of lost the the feeling
0: of the sanctuary being a place of total worship where you come in. With a worshipful attitude, mm-hmm. and you feel comfortable with going to the altar and kneeling yeah. and praying. Yeah, that's somehow over the years has disappeared, yeah. and, and it didn't used to be there.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the seeker targeted movement of the '70s and '80s tried to remove all of that. They wanted to make it comfortable for the lost person to have you know feel Country comfortable. Yeah, com- you know. And again, I want to be balanced here because do we have access to God? Yes. Yes. Is God our friend? Yes. Can we, you know, can we come into the worship service and greet each other with joy and and, and happy to be churchmen? Yeah, I'm not saying we walk in all somber and dour and we're ready to fall. I'm just saying that I wonder if 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 you were to measure worship, corporate worship, would you say that the lighthearted is higher than the heavy, just in, and just in the balance? And I'm not saying every week has to be the same, but I just wonder if we're out of balance in that.
0: And some of that, I think, is in our culture, we don't like we don't like terror, we don't like yeah. pain, we don't like negative emotions. Yeah. Um, and yet, in my experience, any time the conviction of the Holy Spirit has come,
1: you feel that conviction and it's ugh, and right on the heels of it is, is comfort. Yeah. And you see the same thing with this, every single time God shows up and people do fall on their faces, yeah, the next words out of his mouth, there's some some kind mouth. of comfort. Yeah, and yeah, we'll get to that in just one minute. I want, before I forget this, have you guys read the book *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe* or seen the movie *The First Chronicles of Narnia*? Okay, so Aslan is who the Christ character; he's the big lion, and um, the kids, Lucy and her brother brothers and sister, end up at, at Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's house. You know, and they're talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're talking about Aslan because they don't know who he is yet. They just know he's a big lion. And they're they're excited about meeting Aslan, and I think Lucy says, "Is he safe?" And Mister Beaver says, "Safe." Who said anything about safe? <laughs> Aslan is not safe, but he's good. Okay. Is Jesus safe? That's kind of a weird question. Maybe not, but he's good. Okay, so you have the the fear, but then you have the friendship. Okay. Sean?
0: Isn't this yes. also
1: the same time some of the pastors decided not to talk about hell and, and yeah. yeah, I mean there's, there, the, if you want to give a label to it, it's I guess you call it seeker targeted, seeker sensitive. There, there was a movement in the 80's and 90s and even today where we want to take down crosses, anything that would draw attention to the cross, to blood, to hell, to repentance, we want to take those elements out of corporate worship because we want the seeker, the lost person, to feel comfortable and casual when they come in. And we, and I think it's a noble, I think their motive is pure. These people want to remove barriers so that the gospel can be clearly proclaimed and they have a passion for reaching lost people. And I don't have any problem with their motive. But let me just ask you guys a question. Is Sunday morning worship Geared towards lost people, or is it geared towards saved people?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Ultimately, what's the purpose of Sunday morning? We're just no, Sunday morning is geared towards God's people gathering for worship. What are the other six days geared towards? You going out and evangelizing your friends, and you going out and sharing the gospel. That doesn't mean you don't bring your lost friends to church. And we're not saying, you know, I'm not saying, you know, we want lost people to be in our services, and we do. But we want the gospel to be the full gospel. Some churches are afraid to talk about those things. They're afraid that we're going to turn people off or people. um, And so my theology, I'm I'm kind of getting on a tangent here. My theology says, well, I'll just play my cards on the table. If God has chosen his people before the foundation of the world, and they're his people, when the gospel is presented, they will come. And you don't have to water it down. When the sheep hear the shepherd's voice, they will come to the shepherd. All we need to do is just give them the gospel, and not water it down.
0: Um, and the one thing they don't want to hear is gospel.
1: Yeah. But if they're under conviction and God's drawing them, that how else are they gonna get saved but by the gospel? Because you've given them a bait and switch. You basically they won't come to church a lot of times because they don't. Yeah, really they don't hear
0: the pastor yeah. preaching. Yeah. Yet.
1: So it yeah. takes us
0: telling them outside. The yeah, church. and
1: yeah, and that's a good point. Brent or somebody. There's a
0: famous pastor down in Texas that was asked by Larry King oh. you know, why, um, why he doesn't preach a bloody cross
1: on Sunday. Mm-hmm. said because he doesn't want to offend the 1,300 Muslims that come to his church. Now, should we be sensitive to lost people in our church? Absolutely. Do we want to be a welcoming church? We just had a meeting a few weeks ago with our greeter team to make sure that we're greeting and we're welcoming. We want to remove all barriers to anybody coming to the church to prevent them. So, so here's what I have to say. The sermon starts in the parking lot. I don't know if you know that. The sermon starts in the parking lot. Most people are going to make a decision on church the first five minutes they've walked out of their car. And so what our job is, is to remove any barrier to them being able to actually hear the sermon. And I told the welcoming team a few weeks ago, if, if somebody's going to be offended at Emmanuel, let me offend them through my preaching of the truth. They're going to be offended. Let them be offended at the cross. But let's not put things there to... So, I mean, there's wisdom there. We want to be comfort, We want to be a greeting. We want to be welcome. We want lost people. Um, but... We kind of got on a tangent here, didn't we? What, we're trying, what I'm trying to say is the transcendent holiness of God has sometimes been lost in our worship services and sometimes that can be out of balance. So John falls down as though dead, but then notice what happens. What comes out of Jesus' oh, right, verse 17? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. He touched me and said, fear not, I am the first and the last. Notice the intimacy. What does it say? He laid his hand on it. It's going to be all right, John. It's going to be all right. Fear not. Why shouldn't John fear? Now, this is where you've got to understand the gospel of John, the John the apostle, and how Revelation fit together. We as a church went through the Gospel of John for two and a half years. What was John's most intimate and repeated expression used for Jesus when he wrote the fourth Gospel? The seven I am statements. Remember those? What's the first words out of Jesus' mouth that John himself hears that wrote the Gospel of John and the seven I am statements? What's the first thing John hears when Jesus lays his hand on him? I am the first and the last. Now, would that be comforting to you if you were John? Think about John for a moment. You're the oldest living apostle. You're on the island of Patmos. You're separated from your church. You just saw this vision. You were terrified and fell on the ground. And the, the, the thing about Jesus that was the most precious to you were these I am statements because you wrote about it in your gospel. And the first thing you hear out of Jesus' mouth, Jesus meets John exactly what John needed to hear. What did John need to hear? He needed to hear an I am statement. And it wasn't I am the bread of life, I am the living, you know, I am the resurrection of life, I am the way, the truth, and life. All the seven I am statements. This is a different I am statement. I am the first and the last this comes from the old testament isaiah 44 6 thus says the lord the king of israel and his redeemer the lord of hosts i am the first i am the last besides me there is no god isaiah 48 12 through 13 listen to me O jacob and israel whom i called i am he i am the first I'm the last, my hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call them, they stand forth together. He's the first and the last. And then look at verse 18. And not only am I the first and last, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. How else does Jesus describe himself? As the Living one. You don't get this in your English translations, but here's how the Greek sounds. It's very emphatic. I am the first, the last,
0: that is,
1: pay attention, the living one. There's an emphatic way of him saying, I really want you to pay attention that I am the living one. He's the resurrected Christ. The resurrection proves Christ's authority. What was one of the I am statements that Jesus told Mary and Martha at Lazarus' tomb? In John eleven twenty five 25-26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I'm the resurrection and the life. So John sees this scary vision of Jesus, falls as though dead, Jesus puts his hand on him intimately and says, don't fear, I am the first and the last. I'm the resurrected Christ. And not only that, what does he say? I have the keys to death and Hades. Now, what does this mean? Keys will show up again in the book of Revelation. In apocalyptic literature, keys... I don't think Jesus is talking about how he has a literal key. He's going to go unlock death and he's going to go... Keys are symbols of authority. In Jewish literature, God the Father is the only one who has the keys. But Jesus has the keys because he's the exalted Son of God by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection has the authority to have the keys. Now, when he has the keys, what does that mean? When Jesus says... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What does he hold the key to? I determine who's going to go to heaven, and I'm going to determine who's not. It's only through me and my authority. Now, here he says, I have the keys to death and Hades. I don't know really how to explain this other than death is the state, Hades is the place. When you're dead, you're dead, right? So so death is not really a place. Death is what happens to you. Hades is a place. Um, And we can talk about Hades later. But the important thing is, why would it be important for Jesus to emphasize his authority over these two things? I have authority, I have the keys over your death and over Hades
0: everybody dies, okay. and the Hades part is who, who he goes to Hades, and he okay. goes to heaven, okay. and if you're being persecuted, and you're fearing for your life, and you're fearing for your family, yeah, knowing that God is in charge of exactly how long you live, takes yep. that
1: away? takes that away. I, I'm in charge of when you die, and I'm in charge of where you go, so don't don't sweat the details. That's easy to say. So John is an is exile on the island of Patmos. He's writing back to a persecuted church, a threatened church, who would need to hear the words of encouragement. Because who did they think? Like, if you're under persecution, who are you thinking really has the keys? The Roman authorities could come in any minute now and take my pastor away. they could drag me away. They could come in and shut this down. We could be persecuted. Ultimately, Rome has the keys to my life and determines when I'm going to die. No. Who determines when you die? Jesus, when he wants you to. And he has the power over your life to give you eternal life. Yes, at least. So does
0: somebody come check up on Can he, does his letters get delivered?
1: John's letters? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, because obviously we have a written copy of it, oh, so yeah. this letter had to have gotten to a church. but I, but I just uh, was Yeah, we'll talk about that. They, this was what was called a circular letter, which means it was circulated among the seven churches. These seven churches were on the postal route oh. of Asia Minor. So it'd be like, okay, he starts in Sterling, he goes to Atwood, then he goes to Marino, then he goes to Brush, then he goes to Fort Morgan, then he goes to Wiggins, and then Rogan. I mean, are those the towns, pretty much. I mean, but give or take a few. I mean, if you go, yeah. I, so like it's the postal route. That that was the way those. So those letters were circulated to those seven churches, and that's what we. This this was this was circulated. Okay. Does, that, does that make sense, reason yeah. Okay. All right. Um. Now, are you going to face death? The first death. There's a. Do you guys know there's two deaths? The first death and the second death. Look at what John says here. No, I'm raptured. Right
0: okay. <laughs> <laughs> Look at verse
1: 19. Yeah. Right. Therefore, oh wait a minute. Let me just talk about the the second death for a moment. Every single person's going to face. Yeah, you're you're either going to die, or Christ is going to come back before you die, and you're going to be caught up in the air. But what's the second death? Turn turn your Bibles to Revelation 20. Go to the very end. There's the second death. So, chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. If Jesus has the power over death and power over Hades power over your life, you're going to physically die at the appointed time that God has you to physically die. You can't cheat death. When it's your time to go, you will go under God's sovereign plan. But as a Christian, you will not face the second death. Look at this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence fled the earth and sky, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades. See those words again? Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What's the second death? The lake of fire. Being thrown into the lake of fire. Now back to chapter 1. Verse 19. John's given an instruction. Write, therefore, three things. The things you have seen... The things that are, and the things that are to take place after this. Okay, so what does this mean? Three things, right? What you've just seen. What has he just seen? The glorious vision of Christ. You need, remember what I said last week, what does John want to establish from the very beginning of the book of Revelation? Revelation a glorious and victorious picture of Jesus ruling and reigning over all to give us encouragement. Write what you've just seen, John. You've got to tell people about this glorious vision of Christ. Okay, then what's he to write? Write things that are. Okay, the present. What's the things that are going on during John's time that that he's told to write this? Well, the things that are going on with the seven churches. contemporary audience. But I think because there's seven churches, I think it's a message for us today as well. I think it applies. If you don't think the seven churches apply to us today, then you could say, well, the book of Ephesians doesn't apply to us today because it was written back then. The book of Philippians doesn't apply to us because it was written back then. Do you want to say that about every book of the Bible that was written back then that doesn't apply to us? So there's a lot of things in these seven churches that apply to us. And then the third thing he's supposed to write is, what must take place? Remember, this is a prophetic book. John is going to be given what's going to happen in the future. So, John is given instructions. Write this down. It's important what you write it down. You're going to think about think about your memory. If I don't write it down, it ain't gonna, It's not. This is to be written down for all posterity, so that it can be preserved as as scripture. Okay. Now, look at verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so you got stars and lampstands. Stars. Now, let's talk about the stars. He says the stars are the angels. There's been three interpretations of what this word means. Does this literally mean like an angelic being or that a guardian angel is assigned to these seven churches? There's three major interpretations that that, that most scholars have said to take the meaning of the stars. The first is to take a literal reading and see this as an actual angel of the sort or angel of a church, sort of like a guardian angel. Okay, so literally take it, it's an angel, it's a guardian angel. The, the seven stars are the seven angels. You're to write this, um, write this to, to one of the seven, to, 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 to an actual angel. The second interpretation, the Greek word agalos, which is where we get our word angel, can also be translated simply messenger. Angel is a transliteration of the Greek word agalos. You kind of see agalas, angel, it kind of sounds the same. So when you automatically think of angel, what do you think of? A heavenly being with wings or whatever. The word can actually mean a messenger, which some people believe that the star was the actual pastor or the leader of that specific church. There's a third interpretation. Um, I'm not going to be dogmatic on these because you really don't know, but it could be that... The best solution is to take this as a metaphoric, symbolic language and see that the angel is a symbolic way of personifying the actual church itself. It characterized the prevailing spiritual attribute or climate of the church. It doesn't really matter how you take it, because who is he writing to? Seven stars, seven churches, what do we know about a star and a lampstand? What's a star do? Gives off light. What's a lampstand do? Okay. So no matter how you take it, we we obviously know that the lampstand's the church. So what is the purpose of the church? To shine the light of Christ in the darkness. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. The word there for a lamp, people do not light a lamp, is the same Greek word for lamp stand in Revelation. Yes, go ahead.
0: What's the terminology that we use in the Old Testament for the Israelite people to be a light into the world, too?
1: Yeah, and, and Isaiah, at the end of Isaiah, it says there to be a light to the Gentiles. A light to the Gentiles. Which means that even in the Old Testament, you have imagery of light in the missionary, like mission language. Okay. Who were the Israelites? God, the okay. Let me teach you some words here. In the old, all right, so I'm going to get, because these are dry erase. Okay. Those of you that are science people, what is centripetal and what's centrifugal? Okay, okay. If something is centripetal, what does that mean? Things are drawn... Things are drawn in. It, things are drawn inward to it. Things are attracted to it. What's centrifugal or centrifugal? Things are sent out. Okay. In the Old Testament, when God called the nation of Israel to be his chosen people, especially in Exodus 19. You will be to me a kingdom and priest and to my God, um, a holy nation, a, a people for my own possession. Um, their primary purpose as the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was to be centripetal in the sense, did God ever tell them to go out to the nations? What did he say? You will be a light to the nations. In the Old Testament, how did you become part of Israel? You had to come in. They never really went out. To, the only the only prophet that went out to another nation was Jonah. When the prophets were sent, they were sent to the Israelites. So the mission of Israel in the Old Testament was more, come and see us. Come and see us. Come see how we are distinct. Come see how we are alike. Come see how we're holy. Come see that we have the only true God. Come see our sacrificial system that points to A need for a Savior. Come see how we have the Ten Commandments. Come see how we're holy. And as you see us as a distinct nation, you will be drawn to us. When you get to the New Testament, when Jesus gives us the Great Commission, what does he tell us to do? Go out to the nations. So, Israel was never really called to necessarily go out to the nations. It was more let the nations be attracted to you. In the New Testament, we're told to go out to the nations. Now, I would say that actually, as a church, we're to have both of these. We should be such a people that people are attracted and want to come see what's so different about us. We're a light, but we're also shining a light and going out to people and going out to the nations. So, in this type of language, we are today both centripetal and centrifugal, or centrifugal in the sense that we are a come and see people, come and see how we're different, but we're also, we're going to go to you and tell you the gospel. And so in the Old Testament, Glenn, they were to be a light to the Gentiles, not so much go out to the Gentiles, but be that light that they're attracted to, like a, like a, like a moth is attracted to light. Okay? But here, when Jesus says you're the light of the world, where, where does the light go? You put it on top of a city, a hill, and you are the light of the the world. Okay? So we're to shine like a lampstand, like a light. In the sense that we're shining, hey, come and see us. We're shining, we're different, we're distinct. But we're also, we're not just going to hunker in and, and be our own people. We're going to go out to you. We're going to go out to the nations. We're going to be evangelistic. We're going to go to the ends of the earth. We're going to obey the Great Commission. Now, one last passage of Scripture, Philippians 2, 15 and 16. Paul says to the, the church in Philippi that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Now let's talk about this passage of scripture. Some translations say you shine as stars. What are the two images that John has told us that Jesus says we are? Stars shine, lamps shine. Paul says here in Philippians, you're supposed to shine as lights in the world. Now how does he describe the world? Look at that. What type of world do we live in? What does he say? We live in a crooked and twi- do we live in a crooked and twisted generation? Yeah. <laughs> do we live in a generation that's dark? Yeah. Do we live in a generation that needs light?
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, well, we can moan and complain about how dark it is, and complain about the culture until the towels come home, and get really upset that people are sinning and doing crazy things. But what's the problem? Is the problem them or us? Now I'm not gonna. You have to be careful with how you say that. They are in darkness and don't know any different. I'm not excusing their behavior. But if somebody's in the dark, whose responsibility is it to go turn on the light? Those that have the light. So if we live in a crooked and twisted generation, how do we shine the light? What does Paul say? How do you shine the light? What do you do? Hold fast to the word of life. What's the primary way you shine? What does it mean to hold fast? Stay firm. You stay firm in God's word. You don't compromise God's word. You hold fast the word of life, the word that gives life. So if we're going to be faithful witnesses for Jesus in a crooked and twisted generation, and we're supposed to shine, we're, we're lampstands, then we've got to ask the question. How well are we shining in a dark world that needs the light, and are we doing that by holding fast to the Word of God and giving people the Word of
0: God? You made a
1: comment party, and part of
0: your talk uh, a Sunday or two ago, maybe, about finding ways and excuses and reasons for bringing out the Word of God, express the Word of God, and bring it up as a part of your oh, conversation yeah. or something Yeah, like we that.
1: talked about Psalm 119 where it says, you know, the word of God needs to always be on your lips, yeah. and I will, I will speak of your law, and how we need to always be talking about Jesus yeah. and bringing that up. Yeah, yeah. well, from your heart, the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's yeah. so. the scripture that says? You should always be ready to... To give a defense? Yeah, that's First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, I think. So, that's chapter one. <laughs> are you ready? <laughs> so, um, are there any questions in the last five minutes that we have here, or clarifications, or anything that, before we pray? And, yes, Reese.
0: I kind of got the image, you know, symbolically, you know, the star and the lamp. Well, yeah. the star led everybody to the birth of Jesus, yeah. and he was in the stable with yeah. the lantern shining. Do,
1: do a... St- yeah, do a, study of, of, do a study of fire and light all the way through the Bible. What did God first say? Let there be light. How did God show up to Moses? In a burning bush. How did God lead the Israelites? By a pillar of fire. Okay, when Jesus came, there was a star that led to Bethlehem. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. We are to be lights shining in the darkness. That metaphor of light goes all the way through the Bible as an outward glowing of and the Shekinah glory from from the temple, the tabernacle. Um, So as we as we look at chapter one, the, the picture that John holds for us is you're gonna be in tribulation, you're gonna suffer, you're in a crooked and depraved world that's bad. And you can complain and you can hunker down And you can fret and worry or you can look at Jesus who's victorious and get a glimpse of how powerful he is and have hope to know that he holds you in his right hand and he's calling you to shine as a church and individually in the darkness and to live for him. So actually when you think about the whole ending of chapter 1, it's almost like a missionary chapter to shine the light to the world. Not, not no, Hide under a bushel, no. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. All right, anything else before we close up? Shop? You, uh,
0: you talked about what the world was death in Hades, and, and one of my thoughts was death all started in the Garden of Eden, mm-hmm. and it's going to be finished death.
1: Well, and there's going to be a new heaven, like so. Here's yeah, the way the Bible the Bible heaven. has beginning, middle, beginning. Where does the Bible start? In a garden. Where does it end? If you read, when we get to the end, when you read the new heavens and the earth, new earth, it's got the tree of life. It's, I mean, it's got all the imagery that you have in Edom. Paradise Lost, Paradise. Lost. So anyway, just a reminder: church in the park this Sunday. Bring an extra chair if guests show up bring food, bring yourself, maybe bring bug spray. I don't know there will be bugs um, I won't tell you what I'm preaching from, but um, I'll just give you a hint. It's in the Old Testament. And it's not Exodus. We're not starting that until two weeks, so. <laughs> All right, Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. I'm thankful for the opportunity we've had to look at your word. And, and Lord Jesus, um, I pray that um, we can get bogged down in the symbolism and fail to see the forest for the trees and not just step back and and realize how powerful and beautiful and glorious you are. And Lord, if if we don't get anything tonight, help us just to realize you have us in the palm of your hand. You'll never let us go. You're in our midst. You've ordained our days. And until you come back, you called us to shine as lights. Help us to be faithful in that as we glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.